Today's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me is sponsored by FilmCred. Providing new film critics and writers in-depth feedback on their writing, FilmCred is made up of a community of collaborators dedicated to publishing insightful reviews, interviews, video essays, and coverage of film festivals. Visit film-cred.com to learn more. And I'm Lauren Lloyd. And you're listening to The Movies That Made Her But Not Me, the podcast where we discuss classic films from different generational perspectives. The classic film we're discussing today is a 2017 film, Oh Hello. Yeah, speaking of theater being hot, you'll notice that we are filming the show tonight. Yes, you see cameras all over the place. We're filming this. As a special for investigation discovery. Yeah. No, it's for Netflix. It's a binge watch. It's a binge watch. So you watch an episode of a show and then you wait a week and then you binge watch another episode. <laughs> also, if you see a camera, you know, look right down the barrel of the lens, all right? And, and you know, we're trying to convey that we have a diverse audience. So if you're white tonight, if you could just not be. Yeah. <laughs> Let's set the scene. The movie is Oh Hello, starring Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. Oh Hello is a recorded Broadway show on Netflix about Gil Faison and George St. Giegland, two old men who have been roommates since the 60s. When their New York City rent-controlled apartment becomes no longer rent-controlled, they must revive their old radio show called Too Much Tuna to save their home. The year is 2017. Donald Trump is inaugurated. North Korea tests missile launches. The Women's March takes place all across the United States on the same day as the inauguration. White supremacists march in Charlottesville, resulting in the takedown of Confederate statues. And the New York Patriots mount the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. Minna is 17 years old and just discovering the joy that is Gil and George. Minna, tell me about the first time you saw Oh Hello. Um, first of all, just, you know, hearing that be read and also <laughs> researching 2017, depressing year, not a great year. So... Terrible year, but sounds a bit better than where we are right now. Yes. I'm not sure, but so horrible. So I think, you know... Gil and George were definitely a shining light in the middle of this very depressing year. But um, I watched Oh Hello for the first time with my friend. We watched it on Netflix. We laughed so hard we cried. She had seen it before and she was like, Minna, you've got to see this. You're going to love it. And I absolutely did. I've seen it countless times since then. I've showed it to everybody I know. I'm just absolutely and totally obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. I can like perform the whole thing by myself. I believe it. I'm dressed as Gil and George for Halloween. That's hysterical. hysterical. (laughs) I used the I Voted sticker on Gil Faison's jacket um, to promote voting in young people during the 2020 election. Like Mm -hmm. using that image of him and being Mm -hmm. like, Gil wants you to vote. Make sure you're educated. Ask me if you have any questions. We got to get out the vote. It's 2020. So like Gil and George have been very much a big part of my life and shaping my sense of humor and in me 
growing and learning about different types of comedy and mm-hmm. different genres of comedy. So like in a technical way that you've been able to see comedy in a different different types of comedy? Yeah, I think that, you know, improv was not right. an area of comedy that I had explored, not in terms of doing it, but in terms of enjoying it. Yes. And seeing Gil and George do improv opened my mind to oh, improv can be something that's very enjoyable and very mm-hmm. good. Because when you're watching college improv, you know, it's very different than watching professionals yeah. do it. Usually, stand-up comedy, it's usually horrible. Yeah. And so that's why the ones that are really good go right to the top, because they are really good. Because not that many people have something to say. Yeah. Yeah. So I think <clears throat> that it, it opened my, my mind to different types of comedy, different genres of comedy, and also um, took me back to sort of my roots of introduction to comedy, which was vaudeville, Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, The Three Stooges. I find that astounding. That's what my comedy education was. Yeah. And your parents introduced you to those those Mm -hmm. vaudeville acts. Yes. My dad saw the Marx Brothers for the first time when he was in late high school. And he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my parents never told me about these guys. Like, they're amazing. And so when my brother and I were younger, my dad made a point to make sure that we were educated on the Marx Brothers. And my mom always tells this story about how she'd never seen my brother laugh so hard than when we were watching Laurel and Hardy try to take the piano upstairs. That bit. And so... You know, vaudeville was very much a a big part of our comedic upbringing. And I think especially growing up in a Jewish household, knowing the roots of Jewish comedy was very important to my parents and then also to me and my brother. I remember doing a a Hebrew school project. We Mm -hmm. had to do a project on like a famous Jew. Mm -hmm. I was probably 10 years old. (laughs) And my project was on the Marx Brothers. I showed clips of the Marx Brothers. I talked about how the the comedy group got started and their musical education. And my classmates just looked at me like I had 14 heads. They were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, you don't think this is funny? Who are you? I'm fine, thanks. Who are you? I'm fine too, but you can't come in unless you give the password. Oh, what is the password? Oh, no, you gotta tell me. Hey, I tell what I do, I give you three guesses. It's the name of a fish. Is it Mary? Ha <laughs> ha! That's an old fish. She isn't. Well, she drinks like one. Let me see. Is it Sturgeon? Hey, you crazy. Sturgeon, he's a doctor. Cuts you open when you're sick. Now, I give you one more chance. I got it. Haddock. That's a funny. I got a haddock, too. What do you take for a haddock? Well, now, sometimes I take aspirin, or sometimes I take a calomel. Say, I'd walk a mile for a calomel. You mean chocolate calomel. I like that, too, but you know, guess it. Yeah. That's definitely where a lot of my, my upbringing Well, do, came from. Uh, does a lot of the people in your community and generation, are they as in love with Oh Hello as you are? The people that I know who have seen Oh Hello uh-huh. enjoy it. I don't know anybody who's my age who has seen Oh Hello and didn't find it to just be hilarious. Mm-hmm. I think what's lost on people... Well, I think what what works is that it's super funny. It's really crazy. It's raunchy. It's over the top. It makes no sense. I think that kind of works with everyone. What I think is missed on a lot of people is the very direct influence of vaudeville that uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll were drawing from when they wrote the show. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that has translated quite as well. I've Mm -hmm. read interviews that they've given where they've said very directly like, 
Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers. That's who we were looking to when we wrote this Broadway show. That's who we were trying to emulate. We wanted to bring Broadway back to a vaudeville show. Should it be? Our show's brought back to a vaudeville that's what I think is so smart about Gil and George and Oh Hello is that it is vaudeville very directly. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're doing this direct inspiration of vaudeville kind of keeps the classic comedy duo alive mm-hmm. where you have in the genre it's called the asshole and the child, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you have like the one person in the comedy duo who's smart and the other person who's dumb. And that's kind of like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Dean Martin is smart, Jerry Lewis is dumb, and he has to take care of Jerry Lewis like he's a baby. And then you have sort of the opposite of that, which is very Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, where one of them thinks that they're smart and the other one is dumb, but they're actually both dumb. And that's what... What does the other one think? That the other one is smart or dumb? The other one is smart. Because that's what's going on with Gil and George, right? George is the smart one, Mm -hmm. and Gil is the dumb one. But they're actually both stupid Mm -hmm. and are bad at things. But, you know, George thinks that he's smart, and then he has to protect Gil, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he lies to him about his CBS audition. Like, he has to take care of him, even though neither of them know what they're doing, really, and are both doing life poorly. So I think, you know, there are other modern comedy duos that are inspired by vaudeville, but I don't really see as many directly being like, okay, this is what Abbott and Costello was like. We're going to do the same thing to mm-hmm. keep their comedy mm-hmm. duo interaction alive. Well, when you look at um, buddy comedies, I guess, you know, there was like Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, or uh, I'm trying to think who else was um, was was teamed up. Oh, what about Dumb and Dumber? Those oh, guys. Yeah. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, too. Yeah. Oh, God, they were good. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. So, yeah. I think that when you look at other comedy duos right now, like in Pen15 or, yeah, you know, funny. Key and Peele, I think that they are being influenced by... Um, by vaudeville, but I don't think it's as blatant. Like, there's the joke in Oh Hello where they say their play was inspired by and directly stolen from. Yeah, that's good. And I think that those people were inspired by, but Gil and George are directly stolen from. I think if you took out all of the, like, raunchiness of the show, you could take those two guys and put them in a vaudeville act and have them do ridiculous nonsense, and it would have worked with those audiences as well. Like physical comedy. Yeah, like the physical comedy, some of the more slapsticky jokes, the absurdity of it. I think, you know, my favorite comedy duo from Vaudeville are the Marx Brothers. Sorry, that's not a comedy duo, but my, that's my favorite group from back then. And what I love about the Marx Brothers, which I think, you know, either works with people or doesn't work with people, is the fact that there really is no story Right, there's kind of a story, but it's very vague. It's like, the hospital doesn't have any money. So we got a new doctor (laughs) and a really rich woman, and they're going to solve it. That's not really a story, but it is like an outline of what's going Mm -hmm. on. And then all the playful stuff, all the set pieces hang from that vague And you kind of forget about what the story is because the Marx Brothers are so funny. And what you remember is the scene where, you know, they're doing the mirrored images of the two brothers. Or they're playing a harpsichord for 20 minutes in the middle of the movie. Or, you know, whatever the bit is, 
you remember that and not really what the story is about. And I think mm-hmm. that Oh Hello has a very similar structure where if you've only seen Oh Hello once, like okay. I remember talking with my mom about it and her being like, is there a story? There's not, right? It's just jokes. And I'm like, no, there is a story. Mm-hmm. And I told her what the story was and she was like, I don't remember any of that. I don't remember that. that either, but I, kn- I had a feeling there was a story there. <laughs> But I think that that's like, that's directly from Marx Brothers. That's the Marx Brothers influence is that there doesn't need to be a story if the jokes are good. You can just have a loose outline and drape everything over that. I completely agree with you structurally. I have to go back to what I, what I have been taught is that it's about character, character, character. And I just didn't, <laughs> look, I love those two actors, okay? I just didn't like their characters. They gave me the heebie-jeebies. I was like, oh, these guys are... It's gross. Anyway, so I'm sorry. But yeah. And so if I can't connect to that, I can't really see. I thought some of this stuff was very funny. But Mm -hmm. I just didn't. uh... What wasn't working for you about the characters? You didn't like that they were. I thought they were caricature-ish. Like the the shirt tail sticking out the fly. Come on. That just seems. It seems so obvious. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, the way they spoke and the way they were changing the dialogue. Maybe that's familiar with you. It wasn't with me. I just thought that was weird. Yeah. Was it because you felt like you'd seen those characters a million times before? Or they were so unlike anything you'd ever seen that you didn't like them? That's a really good question. I just didn't understand what their frame of reference was. So, it has to be. But um, there are many people that I've seen that I have no idea what their background or upbringing or anything is and I, I can certainly connect to them I couldn't connect to them at all mm-hmm. I felt like their unrelatability is what made them relatable because they were supposed to be caricatures and their racism sexism all of that was supposed to be making fun of people who acted that way um, the show was actually created because Nick Kroll and John Mulaney were at the Strand bookstore And they saw two elderly men in turtlenecks and blazers purchase separate (laughs) copies of Alan Alda's book, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed, and other things that I've learned. So they saw those two guys purchase two separate copies of that book, and they were like, boom, that's our show. Oh my god, because Alan Alda, there's a shout out to him. The best actor. Some of our accolades, we are the recipients of a 1997 restraining order. Keeping us 100 feet at all times from America's greatest actor, Mr. Alan Alda. Alan Alda, double A, beep, beep, get off my property. But I think that like, when you read that, you're like, well, that's exactly the kind of person that they're making fun of, is an old man who lives in New York City who would buy Alan Alda's autobiography. And I think that that really works, especially if you know people like that. But I do think, I mean, that was a criticism of the show when it first came out is that unless you live in New York City or you know someone like this or you love theater, this show's not going to work for you. Like unless you live, unless you have a co-op board, like co-op board jokes are not going to be funny to you. (laughs) So I understand that criticism of it, but I do think that there is so much going on that you can kind of forget about, you know, a co-op board joke Mm -hmm. and focus more on the ridiculousness of too much tuna or them explaining to you how modern theater works in a very entertaining way that actually gives a pretty good description of modern theater. That's true. 
And so I think that if you, you know, if you focus on just what resonates with you, there, because there's something for everybody in it is what I guess I'm trying to say. There's a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I guess I would just never go to see that show mm-hmm. or, or watch that movie. And then I think, is it a movie? What is it? Well, I think that that's a perfect conversation for us to have because I think where we need to start is what is a movie to you? Like define a a movie. That's kind of where we have to build off of. So a movie to me is a story with characters told through the lens of a camera. I think that like, okay, yeah, it can be argued like how is that different than TV? I think then you have to kind of rely on you know it when you see it, right? I mean, if it's TV, if it's episodic, and it's only on television, that's not a movie, right? So I think that if you you eliminate obvious examples of not movies, a movie to me is a story with characters told through the lens of a camera. So even a documentary, right? That's a story with characters mm-hmm, and it's told mm-hmm, through a camera. Mm-hmm. So like even that's a movie. But isn't this kind of a, is shooting a um, play? Well, I don't know if that makes it a movie. I think that what is a movie is kind of a question that I had watching this every, you know, all the, the hundreds of times that I've seen it. I'm not sure if it's a movie. And I think one of the things that makes me unsure is that they filmed an intro, right? That was just for a camera. So they weren't performing that in front of an audience right. and that was for Netflix. Right, right, right. And then they also filmed stuff that happened in the wings during the show, right? Like Gil and George say, the audience sucks off stage and I believe there's an outro also they also brought in um Matthew Broderick specifically just for the recording on Netflix and so I'm like does <laughs> does the addition of Netflix exclusive content make it a movie whereas you know Hamilton that was put on Disney plus doesn't have anything extra it's just the show and I think the fact that oh hello is the only musical that's been recorded and put on a streaming service that includes extra content makes kind of an argument for it being in a different category than a Broadway show that was recorded for a Netflix special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, why do you think that is? Why do you think that Hamilton stood on its own as a filmed play as opposed to when Netflix bought this and they said, we're going to film it, that why do you think it needed extra pieces to explain what it was? I think part of the conversation on what makes a movie goes to the way it's written also, because I assume what happened here since they recorded it over two days and they did it with an audience during the 15 week run that Oh Hello was on Broadway for, that when they did the show, they knew Netflix was going to record it already. So then you kind of get into this conversation of like, okay. Then it's a special. Is it a, well, no, what I'm talking about in the way that it's written, is it like, is that a screenplay because they wrote it knowing it was going to end up on, on Netflix or is it a play because they wrote it for Broadway and then it just so happened to, but they knew it was going to go on Netflix when they were creating it. So I'm just like, if, you know, part, part of what I did when I was researching, like what makes a movie is look at what the Oscars qualifications are like for a movie to be nominated for an Oscar. What does it have to be? Mm-hmm. And the only one that this doesn't meet is having a run in a theater. In a movie theater. Oh, sure, sure. That's the only one that it doesn't meet. Every other point it hits. Mm-hmm. And so 
one of them, you know, is about, you know, when you're looking at like screenplay qualifications, mm -hmm. I was wondering, you know, is this a screenplay? Like what constitutes a screenplay? Is it an adaptation? Well, what the Adapt difference a between a play and a screenplay, if you're watching, if you're just reading the words, you know, in a script, is that the play is written in a way that it's just presented. Do you know what it is? It's the movement of the people on the stage that um, the director's controlling. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a movie, it's written in a way that the camera is controlling what the audience sees. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So it so, would have camera directions in it? Yes. Okay. And so, and it would look a little bit different. You know, they're filming that thing that they're, that play. So it, the question that you have is a really good one. Yeah, and I don't, I can't get access to the play mm -hmm. and or screenplay, so I don't know what it looks like. It's all speculation. I would assume that it was written without camera directions, Me too. Me except too. for Netflix knew they were going to film it, so somebody had to write accompanying camera directions, right? Oh, for right? sure, for sure. That's the adaptation. My point was just that Netflix mm -hmm. purchased mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. when it started. It's not like with Hamilton, it was bought after Hamilton was already off okay, Broadway. So what they might have done is said, listen, we're going to give you a little more money to make the the set a little bit more interesting because the set was super, it was cool. Yeah, it was a know? great set. Um, or we'll, you know. You know um, I think the fact that it's on Netflix changes what a movie or recorded play or any, or television or what any of that means because streaming is a place where you can have television and movies and TV movies and Broadway recordings and all that stuff can exist in the same place. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting to me that Netflix can have, you know, a show nominated for an Emmy and a show on it that's categorized as a stand-up special and, you know, a movie nominated for an Oscar, all mm -hmm. created by the same, same company, same streaming service. I think that that's a big difference between, like, you know, your generation and my generation is like the lines between the categories of movie, stand-up special, TV, yeah. whatever, like those are really blurred. Well, you can't be a snob anymore. It used to be, well, the theater, Broadway, was, you know, in LA we kind of ignored it in the sense that it's very proper and good and they're all educated. It has a whole stigma. Mm -hmm. um, and Oh Hello definitely takes away that stigma. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? There's that feeling of that. But, and, but also, um, this, it's uh, about movies. Movies, movies, movies. That was what was the coolest thing. And then, of course, blockbusters came in, and then it wasn't really about movies. It was about big events. But, yeah, now it's you don't know you're making something. You have no idea where it's going to end up. That's mm -hmm. why contracts are so tricky now. What's the window of when you're going to be showing it where? Mm -hmm. I think... One of the questions that I have about what, about is this a movie is what makes a movie a movie? Like how do we separate theater that's recorded on the screen? How do we separate that from a movie that you watch on screen? Because like, you know, even with the theater run, there are shows like Newsies that had a theater run that would qualify them for an Oscar. But it was already a film. Oh, yes. I'm talking about the recording of the Broadway show. Wouldn't that be insane? Yeah, it would be. I don't think that that would ever happen. My point is just that technically yeah. it could. 
That is okay. I understand where you're coming from. That is wild. So then, so is it that a movie? Move in and then it becomes that, and then and it doesn't. It does okay in theater, and they film that, and they put it up, and it wins. With, that will be. <laughs> but then it's like, is that a, is that a movie? I just I think that you know part of the conversation has to be what makes a movie a movie because you know when you're you're coming up with arguments for why Oh Hello isn't a movie, one of them would be um, is having a live audience part of the movie. Is that what distinguishes it from being a movie? Hang on, that's a good question. That's one of those I have to think about. Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. I think that that could be an argument for it not being a movie, but then my counter argument to that would be there are live recordings of Broadway shows put on Fox and NBC. Right. You know how they do those live, NBC Live. Mm-hmm. Those, some of those were recorded without an audience. So are those movies? <laughs> I, I think there's ego involved with this. You know, like in the olden days, move, you could touch, you know, celluloid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so we get caught up I mean, our skills are about the way, I was going to say content, the way movies are made. It, it, it's changed because it's not, they're not, I don't think there are movies anymore. Maybe Top Gun. What, so what is your definition of a movie? Well, what you were saying, you know. Um, so why don't you think there's movies anymore then? If a movie is just a story with characters. I think because if it's, you know, on the big screen, okay. that's like, it just doesn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so few movies that, you know, um, open there and open, you know, streaming. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I think that that's definitely a big generational difference that kind of like starts the conversation of is Oh Hello a movie? Because to me, a movie doesn't have to be, it doesn't ever have to be in the theater in a movie theater for yes. it to be a movie. That's definitely not part of my yeah, definition. So that is definitely a generational thing. Yeah. And what's better? What's a better way to see it? You know, I'm thinking like, well, you have popcorn and it's a communal <laughs> experience and it's bigger than life and you're thinking, I can see it anywhere. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the convenience of I'm carrying it around with right. me on my computer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely yeah. think there's different ways to... Ex- Um, experience and enjoy different types of content like for example I saw Bohemian Rhapsody Mm -hmm. in IMAX Mm -hmm. and I was like this movie is amazing it is so awesome and then I saw it at home on TV and I was like this movie straight up sucks like why did I enjoy this and it was and it was because I was watching these like expertly directed concert scenes on a giant screen like I was actually at the concert Mm, watching Queen mm -hmm. perform and then when you put it on a TV it was like well now I'm actually watching the story and it's not very good right see there you go so I definitely think that there are ways to enjoy different types of content right like I think Top Gun would be way more fun in IMAX than on my laptop being streamed Mm -hmm. but I also think that streaming services make movies more accessible so that different types of people can see different kinds of movies that they may have not gone to the theater to see but are willing to just click play on their Mm -hmm, streaming service. mm -hmm. Um, That's fair enough. More eyes. Yeah. More seeing. And I think that there's a similar democratization of theater going on with recorded theater productions. 
I know that one of the big things going on in the Broadway community right now is just not enough people going to go see shows, the shows mm-hmm. losing money, and them trying to scramble and do literally anything that they can to try to get to try to stay afloat. And I think one of the things that really keeps theater alive is putting them on Netflix and Disney Plus. That is a fantastic point. It's true. It's they're throwing money into the theater. And that's really important. I think so too. And I think that it allows more people to enjoy uh, to enjoy theater because not everybody can afford to fly to New York City to see a Broadway show. But if they have Netflix, they can watch Oh Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think that it was really interesting that a show would discuss the democratization of Broadway through Netflix in a show where they knew they were being recorded for Netflix. <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on it, but there were a couple of different jokes that were related to the fact that Broadway was really unaccessible. One of them was when they were talking about um, the Pillow Man. Oh no, what's this? Oh my, oh my! It's the Pillow Man from Martin McDonough's The Pillow Man! And for those of you with the crappy sight line who can't see this, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you can't see this. All right. Okay. So what you're missing is it's a pillow with googly eyes and paper towel arms. All right. So next time, get your tickets earlier or just make more money. And I thought that was such an interesting joke to include in a show where like they're profiting off of being a Broadway show, right? They talk about that with Steve Martin even. When you're doing an amphitheater, Steve Steve Martin, we're talking in 1979, you're doing an amphitheater, you're doing a Hollywood Bowl. What are you you making for that night? (laughs) Well, in those days, uh, I was criticized for charging a high price. What was was that? $10. (laughs) You know how much these fucking... I've been trying to get into your show for so long, and I could not get a free ticket. <laughs> and then tonight, you said, well, if you come on, say yeah, we can get a free yeah, ticket. Yeah, you had to sell a Picasso to get in here. <laughs> That's so fascinating to me because they're benefiting from it being a Broadway show, right, where they're making like two fifty dollars a ticket mm-hmm. for the 15 weeks, mm-hmm. and they're also profiting from it being on Netflix mm-hmm. and being shared with anybody who wants to see it who mm-hmm. has Netflix. Mm-hmm. But apparently there's a massive audience, I mean, 15 weeks, you know, um, that want to see those characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super popular characters. After seeing those two old men with the turtlenecks buying Alan Alda's books. That's funny. (laughs) um, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney started doing Gil and George at a comedy club in the early 2000s. The comedy club closed in 2008 and they transitioned their characters... um, into the Kroll show, which was yes. Nick Kroll's comedy show. Mm-hmm. So the places that they've done, Gil and George, are uh, the Kroll show, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Comedy Bang Bang, Conan, Chelsea, Portlandia. They did an off-Broadway show, their Broadway show. They did a U.S. tour. They had their Netflix special, and they also have a podcast. So there's something yes. very relatable about these characters that are are hitting with audiences. And I think it's the same thing that, you know, worked with vaudeville back in the day. It's like people want to see that kind of crazy sketch comedy. That is amazing to me. And so they're just reviving that in a more modern way. One 
one other thing about what makes a movie a movie is um, in terms of recording is the fact that there are movies that we describe as movies that were recorded the same way Oh Hello was recorded, just in a more subtle fashion. The movie that I immediately thought of when I was thinking about um, the way this this Broadway show was shot was, have you ever seen Rope, the Alfred Hitchcock movie? Mm-hmm. That movie was shot exactly like a play. It was in one take. The actors put it on like a play. They did it on a stage. Mm -hmm. And the way that they made it adapted for film or work for film was the walls in the apartment that they shot that was the set of the movie Mm -hmm. were um, on wheels so that they could move the walls around to... uh, make the movie look consistent because they did it all in one take and they shot basically this play that was going on. And my first thought was, okay, that's a movie, undisputably, but how is that any different than the way Oh Hello was shot, right? It's just a play with a camera in front of it. So then what's the difference? And then I was like, well, is it the live audience? Is that the difference? Something that's really interesting when we're talking about like the intersection of, you know, opening theater up for the public and then also trying to save theater and recording things and putting them on Netflix is the musical Diana. I don't know if you're aware of this. The Diana musical. I am aware of it. I have not seen it. I have seen it. And? It's terrible. Uh But what's so interesting to me about it is Diana was a musical that was going on Broadway and then COVID happened and they had to shut down before they ever opened. So what they did was they sold the show to Netflix and performed it with no audience and put it on Netflix that week where they could get money, eyes, you know, because they were going to lose all the money that they put into the show. Regardless of whether it's good or not. It's super clever. It is a really interesting idea. But my question in terms of is that a movie is, is it only a Broadway show if it's been on Broadway, right? I mean, Diana is a show that never saw the theater, was only recorded for Netflix, (laughs) but is described as a Broadway musical on Netflix. There was no yeah, audience in that but one But it was either. written with the intent, you know, and with that uh, limitations, physical limitations of it being in the theater. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it's a theatrical production that unless they changed anything, that's what it is and it's being filmed. So I say no, no, so, no, it is not a movie. So the difference between a movie and a show that is shot for Netflix is intent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because, like, for instance, when they did was Black Widow with um, Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. That was for a big screen. I mean, it was a big, a big event yeah. movie. And... Um, and it wasn't, or it was simultaneously released on uh, streaming. And so she sued them because it's a different, it's a movie. They had the, they switched. It, the intent was that it was made as a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Just because it was released on some streaming service doesn't mean it wasn't, a, you know, what the intention was. Mm-hmm. So, so she won. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess then what's just interesting to me about... Oh, hello, is the intention being a Broadway show that will end up on Netflix. They kind of blur that line further because the intention was both. Yeah, but if you were going to be take the whole idea that it was a play, that we see it being performed on a stage, okay, mm-hmm. then it would be some like the odd couple, 
Do you know, it would be mm-hmm. a series or it would be a movie. It would be put them in a real situation as opposed to presentationally on stage. Right. But Rope, presentationally, <laughs> is on a stage and that's a movie. I just, you know, I don't think that there is an answer. Yeah. I think that it's it a, just depends on how you interpret it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all just content that's meant to be consumed at the end of the day. It is true. The people making it don't that. care. Yeah. The people who are making it don't care what category or genre it falls under. But for me personally, I find it fascinating that, you know, we're out of time and in a generation where it's all just content. It doesn't matter if it's a Broadway show or if it's a movie or a TV show. Like, it's all just yeah, content. Show. Where do you find it? Where do you find it? You know, it's really crazy. I went to the theater to see Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. It was just so great to be in the movie theater, seeing something so big with those, you know, f- uh, those f- flying scenes, which were incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I miss that. I miss that singular uh, experience of movie going. This episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me is sponsored by ScreenSpec, where you can read reviews and features on the latest film and television releases and support underrepresented writers in the process. Visit ScreenSpec.com to stay up to date on what movies and shows you should be keeping up with. I know that you are in the midst of adapting a movie for stage, and I'm sure that you don't want to talk about it specifically, but if you wanted to talk about just like the process of adapting a movie for stage in general. I think that would be interesting just so we as an I'm audience... I'm learning that right now. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I'm learning that right now. What does that movie sound like for the, you know, for the theater? But um, uh, you, you have to thematically really get down to what the movie is about and where would the songs pop in order to for the characters to express things that they're not expressing. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to figure all that out, like, and what's important, and what are the visuals, and do you make it now, or do you make it in the '60s? You know, what do you what do you do? Does it work now? Like, is it what kind of music? Is it is it like country music? Is it you know pop music? Mm-hmm. So it's a very different way of going about it. it all the deals are different too. You know, um, it's interesting to me to find out that. Uh, writers, uh, playwrights own their material, you know? I mean, they're the ones that really, you know, do well as opposed to being hired to write for something. Anyway, all the deals are completely different. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of story, Mm -hmm. what changes need to be made? I know you said that there's a change, you know, when you're adding music into Mm -hmm. it, that you have to figure out where the songs are going to go. But in terms of adapting the actual story and how it plays out? Like, how, how does that change for the theater as opposed to on screen? Um, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I mean, like, like, like you know, obviously there's less that you can show in a, in a Broadway show than in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's no camera right up on you. So mm-hmm. you can't really show emotion. You have mm-hmm. to tell more than show mm-hmm. um, in a Broadway show mm-hmm. because, you know, if you're sitting in the way back, you can't see their expressions. Right, right, right. So I'm just wondering, like, what changes do you have to make to the actual storytelling mm-hmm. that but, show up on the Broadway stage? 
Um, well, you know, the physicality of you, when you watch the, the movie, there's scenes in the car, there's scenes in the school. So that is going to be determined, you know? Mm-hmm. I, the, I think the issues you're talking about are expressed in song. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? In a ballad or yeah. singing to each other or like a, like a monologue. I think that's that handles that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, besides the physicality and the, I, I don't know how many changes have to be made. I'm working with a producer who's a very experienced um, West End in London uh, theater producer. Mm-hmm. And he knows, he, he was like, very little changes have to be made. But when I go back and I look at it, you know, what resonates now? Like, what's important now? That's really what it has to be boiled down to. But we're also, um, you know, looking for the writer to come in and say, this is what's important, blah, blah, blah. This is what stands out. This is how we're going to guide you through it. We're going to have, um, like, it'll be a musical competition, and that's why she's on the road. It'll be, you know, it'll be, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... Something that's cool about a Broadway show being recorded and put on Netflix is you don't have to worry about how facial expression translates to the immediate audience because if there's a camera in front of them, they can do close-ups on their faces and Mm -hmm. things like that Mm -hmm. so that you can express emotion through physicality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the screen in a Broadway show. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of filming it adds this other light, other dimension to the characters and the storytelling mm-hmm. that isn't available in right. in a theater. Um, I also think it's cool because we were talking about adapting a movie to a theater show. I think it's interesting to adapt an improv duo to a Broadway show. You know, this was Comedy Central's first win for put a Comedy Central sketch on a Broadway stage. That had never been seen before. Um, Obviously, there have been comedy duos who have had their own Broadway shows and things that they've done on the stage, but this was kind of the first TV comedy duo that ended up in theater. And I'm curious to see what the adaptations from improv television to theater are like because when you watch something like I don't know if you've ever seen Middle Ditch and Schwartz they're they're an improv duo that just does Mm -hmm. they travel around the country and they do improv and they've been recorded and put on Netflix but the way their show operates is like there's audience involvement and they get the story from the audience and they create the characters and everything right on the spot Mm -hmm. in front of you Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that that's kind of how improv works you know, between John Mulaney and Nick Kroll when they're doing their thing on TV. But I'm curious as to how that changes when they're writing for a Broadway show and making sure that they have some sort of script. I wonder what that adaptation looks like. Well, they have to um, write... um, It's it's their own characters. It's themselves, you know? So that's a different way of generating a show, you know, that it starts with... Two people who can say, hey, listen to us, are we funny? And so the work they did that ended them up on Broadway, um, they were, um, you know, taking a scalpel to their comedy and saying, does this work? Does this work? Is this funnier? Is this funnier? To understand, you know, to really um, make it work. When I was working with Ellen DeGeneres, she was doing a special for HBO. And so she went on the road and she was 
really um, uh, doing your show again and again and again, what worked and what didn't work. What worked. So they would just work the audience and work the characters and end up, um, you know, keeping the stuff that really, that really resonates. So, but, I mean, that's how that came to be. Mm-hmm. So how do they write it? I'm sure they're just like right here, you know, saying, is this funny? What about that? Should I act that out? What do you think? We got to have someone see this. You mm-hmm. know, so. I thought it's something that we haven't talked about, a component of the show, right? There is like no real story. It's just kind of like the loose idea of a story. But one thing that is very strong is that they have a radio show called Too Much Tuna. Which is hysterical. Where they prank people with Too Much Tuna. And it's almost a game show, right? Because, like, the goal of the game show is to get the guests to say, that's too much tuna. And then you win the game show, right. and then you can go sit back in your seat. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a, the strongest part of the play, I think, mm-hmm. is when they have Steve Martin on, and they interview him, mm-hmm. and they try to get him to say too much tuna. Right, right. I think it really speaks to how much other comedians admire what Nicole and John Mulaney are doing, because... Steve Martin just played right into it. And I thought he was such an interesting guest for Netflix because he's also in a comedy duo with Martin Short. It, it shows is... the respect that other comedy duos have for what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Or just comedian on mm-hmm. comedian. Because Steve Martin, I believe, started out as a solo act, right? Mm-hmm. With the arrow in the head and la la yeah. yeah. Did you have Did you have a favorite joke? Um, I don't know. The ones you say are super funny. Even when you say too much tuna, I think it's funny. When I watched it... I thought it was a little funny because the idea of trying to make someone say too much, too much tuna <laughs> is absurdly funny. You know, Steve, there's a wonderful story behind the expression too much tuna. Sure. You see, years ago, we used to drink tuna teenies. Yeah, that's a, a tuna fish based martini. Otherwise known as the martuna. Or as it was known in the lesbian community, the martuna nabertalova. <laughs> The point is, we would drink fish. And one day, the bartender made a mistake and Gil famously said, there's too much tuna on my tuna teeny, but his martuna needs more tuna. And we laughed over it. And you know, Steve, we, we submitted that to the talk of the town in the New Yorker magazine and they canceled our subscription. It's, it's very, very funny, I think. So um, I just think it's funny and absurd. But they were saying things that you thought were funny. So I'm just wondering what the the mis, missed connection is with them. I have no... I just... I don't feel any like, yeah. I, I don't connect to it. I don't relate to it. I don't... Mm-hmm. I wish I did. <laughs> I do. I feel like I'm missing some part of something. That's okay. You don't have to like them. <laughs> I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. You're, I think you're super funny. Thank you. And you said that it formed your sense of humor mm-hmm. and what you thought was funny, you know, what topics and... I I think the dumbest humor is the funniest humor. Mm-hmm. And that idea was formed in my head from, oh, hello. Because the things that they're saying are the stupidest things I've ever heard. Like mm-hmm. my favorite joke, for example, <laughs> is when they do the bit about their other game show that they had. What if we went down to the old W-O-L-O studios and... Take the little episode of You Know What. You Know What? Our game show that contestants had to guess what you knew? (laughs) That was such a vague and hard game show. Because we never narrowed it down what it was I could know. And the one time that guy guessed it, I lied. (laughs) 
That's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But every time I hear it, it is funnier to me. I think, mm. you know, my idea of stupid humor being the best humor came from, came from Gil and George. So they're kind of my, you know, my adult comedy education came from Gil and George. Well, I made a movie called Freddy Got Fingered. Mm -hmm. So, um... That's the epitome of base humor. <laughs> All right, so I do like stupid humor. Mm -hmm. But not with them. <laughs> <laughs> it also sparked my interest in the things that Nick Kroll and John Mulaney were doing. Yeah. Two actors who I didn't really care about. Oh, they're so talented. They are, but I discovered them through Oh Hello. And now I've seen both of them perform live. I saw John Mulaney's most recent comedy tour. Mm -hmm. I saw Nick Kroll performed at my college for our homecoming. Oh, that's fabulous. It was awesome. And he was great. So I love Big Mouth. I think that's one of the smartest shows I on TV. Too. I agree with you. I, I think that what they do is so smart and so interesting and seeing them do Oh Hello is really where it started for me and I'm so glad that it they recorded it and put it on Netflix because you know, I have a personal connection with it being recorded and put on Netflix because it's not a show that I would have ever seen if it wasn't on Netflix. And so therefore I would have never mm -hmm. really discovered mm -hmm. the joys that are Gil and George mm -hmm. and I would have never I don't know if I would have never gotten into it, but I would have never created this like deep connection with Nick Kroll and John Mulaney and the kinds of things that they were doing with their comedy if I hadn't seen Oh Hello and understood like, oh, this is what their background is. Like yeah. I see them do their stand up and they're very funny, but like their background is Oh Hello. And there's Oh Hello jokes in other stuff that they do. Like, is there? Yeah, there's a character who's a raccoon who's named Lisa in Big Mouth. And then there's other kinds of jokes from um, Oh Hello that also ended up in Big Mouth. So I think it's very personal for them as well. And I can definitely see that in, in the way that they perform. I can tell that it's really a personal show for them and that they love doing it. Mm -hmm. Did you see them on Broadway? Mm -mm, no. I only saw it on Netflix. Mm -hmm. But you've seen them do their thing. No, in I've life. never seen them do Are they their still? characters. No, they don't do... I mean, they did their podcast. That was in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, they did Gil and George investigate the death of Princess Diana. <laughs> See, that's funny too. It was very, very good. I would highly recommend. Um, but no, they don't really do Gil and George anymore. I think probably because they're both doing comedy tours. So mm -hmm. they're both kind of working on different things. But mm -hmm. I think that that's something that then they love about Gil and George is like they've been comedy partners since they were in college. And so mm -hmm. Oh Hello kind of gives them an opportunity to come back together and work together. Mm -hmm. And they're so good together. You know, their improv is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to be able to see them do something emotional and close to their hearts through these like ridiculous, raunchy, out there, nonsensical characters. Mm -hmm. It's a very beautiful thing to me. I just adore it. How old were they when they developed these characters? In, um, in college or? Well, it was in the early 2000s, so they were probably what? They're like in their 40s now. So if it was the early 2000s, the, the they were in their 20s. 20s. Yeah, so they were in their 20s when they so came up with it. So you can see where the raunchy, funny stuff comes from, you know, where mm -hmm. what age they were at. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you turned me on to it because I would not have, definitely wouldn't have seen it. Well, I'm glad you did, mm -hmm. even if you didn't love it. Well. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me. Join us next episode when Lauren and Minna visit the soap opera set and talk about the 80s classic Tootsie. Thank you also to Antonio Ortiz for composing our theme and all other music on this podcast. And lastly, thank you to you, listeners. We've started a podcast email for listeners to email us and provide feedback, comments, questions, and anything else you want us to know. Email us at moviesmadeher at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us at Movies Made Her on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter to stay up to date on episode releases, the movies we'll be covering, and all things podcast-related.